and welcome to Season 5 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This podcast was produced on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and I want to pay respect to eight recognized tribes, Kohari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Lumbi, Maharan, Okanichi Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wacamal Suen. Season 5 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast begins with the keynote interview for the 2021 Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival, contending with misinformation in the classroom and in the community. This year, our keynote interview is with Renee Hobbs from the Harrington School of Communication and Media at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, companies, and even back in the 1970s, the New York Times would run something they called advertorials. Okay. They were advertising and opinion columns, and they were placed right there on the opinion page. Today, we use the term influencers. Influencers. YouTuber, YouTubers, YouTube influencers and Instagram influencers, they're propagandists too. But we don't think of them that way. We call them influencers. So we have a lot of alternative words because the word propaganda is so scary to people. But as we understand in the big rhetorical podcast, and you know better than anybody, right? That um, meanings meanings are flexible. Meanings change in context. Yeah. And it's time now for us to call a spade a spade, to use the word that best fits the complex way in which people use image, language, and sound to create unreal realities. Mm. Let's call it propaganda. You'll hear more from Renee in a bit. But first, I have two pieces of news to share with you. The first piece of news is personal. My apologies up front. But you do get brief glimpses into my personal life during the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this one. Earlier this year, I accepted a position at East Carolina University. So I defended my dissertation and graduated from Illinois State University, packed up the family and moved from Bloomington to Greenville, North Carolina. We are excited to be here. Honestly, we've been here two weeks and are falling head over heels in love with the university and the community. Importantly though, we know that we are lucky. Very, very lucky. Go Pirates! The second bit of news is much more exciting, really. Abby Levesque de Camp was chosen by our panel of judges as the winner of the inaugural The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. Abby was nominated by Dr. Ellen Cushman, Dean's Professor of Civic Sustainability and Professor of English at Northeastern University, and Dr. Kara Marta Messina, Assistant Professor of English at Jacksonville State University. Abby is currently a PhD candidate in English, focusing on writing and rhetoric at Northeastern University. Abby commits to justice, feminism, anti-racism, and queerness in every aspect of her work. Her dissertation, 
queer memes, forms, communities, genres, traces queer memes as community-making practices that centralize humor, joy, and identity exploration. Her mixed methods approach, which prioritizes community members' voices through interviews, builds off of her computers and composition article, XMLGBT, a schema for encoding queer identities in qualitative research. Her article describes a coding schema she develops to demonstrate the way digital tools can function as part of queer methods. Her teaching reinforces her commitment to communities and justice. She has taught reading and writing in the digital age, first-year writing, writing for social media, and advanced writing in the disciplines. Her teaching philosophy centers students as community writers to help them develop and transfer skills in new and meaningful ways, seamlessly weaving deep engagements with memes and other genres. Her course evaluations demonstrate students' love for Abby, the knowledges she imparts, and the classroom environment she fosters. One student writes, Abby is one of the kindest, most knowledgeable professors I've had. Other students describe her as helpful, enthusiastic, funny, engaging, well-organized, and intelligent. In the English department at Northeastern University, Abby served as the president and in several other roles of the English Graduate Student Association. She advocated for the department to purchase lockers for master's students without offices. She co-authored policy recommendations to support black graduate students. Abby is valued deeply in the department at Northeastern University and beyond because of her commitments, compassion, and brilliance. After reviewing the nomination packets for all the nominees, and we had quite a few, more than I expected, which was great, our judges wrote, Abby Leves de Camp excels in all the criteria for the award. Specifically, as her nominators describe, she has a strong and valued pedagogical approach. Her work centers justice, feminism, anti-racism, and queerness, which is further exemplified by her dissertation on queer memes and co-authored policy to support black graduate students at her institution, end quote. Another quote from a judge, as another judge notes, Abby Leves de Camp clearly excels in all four award categories of teaching, commitment to diversity and inclusion, service, and scholarship. And her bio demonstrates a clear integration across all categories. What makes her especially stand out is her commitment to diversity and inclusion in the community as well as in the classroom through her mixed methods approach which prioritizes community members' voices through interviews and through her teaching philosophy that centers students as community writers, end quote. Our final judge wrote, Abby's emergence as a leading scholar in rhetoric and composition is not a surprise. Full stop. Her work expanding knowledge in queer rhetorics and digital rhetorics through both her publications and service, arrives at a critical time for these areas and their convergences. Kudos to this emerging scholar. End quote. I want to send a quick thank you to the judges for the award this year. Thank you for working over the summer to determine a winner, and congratulations to Abby Levesque de Camp. 
The 2021 Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival, contending with misinformation in the community and in the classroom, concludes today with our keynote interview with Renee Hobbs. This week, podcasts and podcasters from around the world have come together around one central theme, misinformation. My hope, our hope, is that the knowledge created and shared throughout the carnival helps people understand the incredible impact misinformation, disinformation, fake news, and propaganda have on society. Renee Hobbs is an internationally recognized authority on media literacy education. Through community and global service, and as a researcher, teacher, advocate, and media professional, Hobbs has worked to advance the quality of digital and media literacy education in the United States and around the world. She is the founder and director of the Media Education Lab, whose mission is to improve the quality of media literacy education through research and community service. Professor Hobbs maintains an active research agenda that examines the intersections of the fields of media studies and education. She has written four books and published over 150 articles in scholarly and professional journals. She is the founding co-editor of the Journal of Media Literacy Education, an open access peer-reviewed journal for the global media education community. Her new book, Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education for a Digital Age, was published in October 2020. In this book, Hobbes demonstrates how global perspective on contemporary propaganda enables educators to stimulate both the intellectual curiosity and the cultural sensitivities of students. Replete with classroom and online learning activities, and samples of student work, Mind Over Media provides a state-of-the-art look at the theory and practice of propaganda in contemporary society, and shows how to build learners' critical thinking and communication skills on topics including computational propaganda, content marketing, fake news, and disinformation. Do make sure to check out Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education for a Digital Age. I read it, and it's fantastic. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Renee Hobbs. are you? Uh, what's your name, your title, and your institution, and, and what do you do there? My name is Renee Hobbs. I'm a professor of communication studies at the Harrington School of Communication and Media at the University of Rhode Island. I direct the Media Education Lab, whose mission is to advance the practice of digital and media literacy through scholarship and community service. So I'm passionate about uh, everything that has to do with digital and media literacy. Um, I teach undergraduate students and graduate students and my place of bliss <laughs> in teaching teachers. Teaching teachers. There's something special about people who can do that and do it well, for sure. So 
when did you move into this role at the University of Rhode Island? I arrived at the University of Rhode Island in 2012 to become the director, the founding director of the Harrington School of Communication and Media. And are you originally from Rhode Island or the East Coast? Nope. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Went yes. to the University of Michigan for two degrees, then moved west or moved east to Boston, okay. uh, where I got my uh, doctorate from Harvard Graduate School of Education. Lived in the Boston area for 20 years, moved uh-huh. down to Philadelphia for 10 years to teach at Temple University in Philadelphia, and then came back this way. So you're just headed down the East Coast, it kind of feels like. That's exceptional. Well, I'm excited to talk to you specifically about misinformation, disinformation, propaganda. I read your book, Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education for a Digital Age. Listeners, Renee's giving a big thumbs up. What's the thumbs up for the book? Thanks for reading it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Thanks. Oh, absolutely. Of course. Uh, It was exceptional. Teachers teaching teachers, right? Absolutely. One more question about before we get into the book. When did you prefer, when did you first become interested in media and communication education? And when did you be- first become interested in studying and teaching about propaganda? Two good stories there. <clears throat> when I was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, I was an English literature major. We were critically analyzing poetry and drama and short short, short stories and novels, and I loved British literature, and I loved American literature, and I was wondering how to use the powerful toolkit that I was developing in uh, my um, in my identity as a literary analyst. Mm-hmm. I was wondering how I could apply those competencies to, like, the TV shows of my childhood, okay. like you know, I Love Lucy and Gilligan's Island. And at that time, there really wasn't much happening in what we now might understand as studies in popular culture. That didn't actually exist Uh uh, when I was in uh, college. And so I just kept thinking that the competencies that I was developing in English literature were very easily transferred. And so I remember one one uh, major life-changing moment when I had to write an academic paper and I decided I was going to write an academic paper about a film that was just out in the cinemas. I got permission from the instructor. thought it was very unusual to, you know, to critically analyze, you know, not a work of literature, but a work of popular film in the movie theaters at that moment. And that popular film Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> and did you know I wrote a 50-page paper on Saturday Night Fever? <gasps> Thrilling. All of these universities you've taught at, that's probably your greatest achievement, right? <laughs> I had a blast with it. I'll and it wasn't, it wasn't until I was a young assistant professor at Babson College in Wellesley, Massachusetts, that I had the opportunity to meet Edward. Bernays, the father of public relations and the author of the 1928 book, Propaganda, where he described propaganda as a part of the practice of democracy. Mm -hmm. He explained that politicians have to create propaganda to get elected and that labor unions have to use propaganda to get people to join labor unions and women have to use propaganda to expand their civil rights. And 
he was at the time he was like 88 years old and he was so sharp and he was so smart. You know, he was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. Right. And I realized that I had a lot of stereotypes in my mind about propaganda. I thought propaganda was like what the Nazis did. Yeah. And to have this legend living legend, you know, in, in a dinner party, and I was what, 25 or 26 years old. It completely blew my mind in a really good way. And it started my powers of observation, like looking around at all the ways we might not call it propaganda, but all the ways in which the persuasive genres are so dominant in our culture, you know, for good or ill, Mm -hmm. the persuasive genres are dominant in our culture. And yet English educators kind of ignore them. So that's the problem I was trying to fix with that book. It sounds like an awesome experience meeting, uh, meeting that, that living legend, but you mentioned women and propaganda. So I want to focus on that intersection for a moment, if that's okay. One of the earliest examples in your book, Mind Over Media, is when the National Archives and Records Administration, NORA, altered images from the Women's March. We actually did a special episode on this issue. Why was this an important moment for propaganda and propaganda education in America? What a great question. And, you know, it is really a complicated phenomenon, right? Because uh, the archives folks were designing an exhibit. They were designing a a set of marketing tools to get people to want to come into the exhibit. And they wanted everybody to come in, right? They wanted everybody to come in and see this beautiful exhibit on uh, the history of women's suffrage. It was like the 100th anniversary. It was a very important time, very important documentation. And the folks who put together the marketing materials realized that those iconic photos of the Women's March with the posters that basically said, you know, fuck Trump and, you know, uh, hands off my body and, um, you know, Trump's a liar and um, stuff like that, that that would that those that the 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 that imagery would be alienating to a lot of political conservatives right? Who, who would see that image as partisan. So they airbrushed out the worst of the, the most, you know, the, the most um, mm, scatological of the references. And they understood that they were, they didn't think that they were manipulating a historic photo. They thought they were designing a marketing display, right? But Imagine when the the Washington Post journalist comes into the exhibit and, of course, notices that these things have been uh, erased, digitally erased. Imagine the feeling of outrage that that journalist experienced. Imagine feeling manipulated, right, Mm -hmm. by having that image be transformed in a way that neutral, politically neutralizes the image. Right. Uh, the outrage uh, was substantial. And so in a way, it, cr- it created a great um, opportunity to introduce this idea that propaganda is in the eye of the beholder. So in your book, you position propaganda and you talked about neutrality just now. 
you position propaganda as something to be appreciated, not demonized, and write that propaganda should not be the fall guy for the, all the world's woes. Why is propaganda a dirty word? And how can instructors overcome this perception with their students? Yeah. You know, this is such a great question because the original meaning, I tried to trace that historically. Why did propaganda, where did it, why did it get such a bad repu reputation? And it goes right back to the Inquisition. So like, <laughs> let's, let's clarify, right? The Catholic church was worried about Protestantism. Okay. The rise of Protestantism was very appealing to people. And so the Catholic church sent out missionaries all over the world to spread the good news of love and forgiveness. And the name of the institution was the propaganda office, right? It was spreading the good news of love and forgiveness all over the world. And it was also a little bit political. Mm -hmm. And of course it also turned into a terrible, terrible uh, form of um, political abuse where thousands mm -hmm. and thousands of people lost their lives because of the, of the, of the, um, of the, mm, mm, the torture and the murders and the other bad things that were part of that in the part of that political uh, time period. Fast forward to the 20th century with the um, rise of newspapers and magazines and um, people began to recognize that you could embed a point of view that would activate strong emotions, mm. simplify information, appeal to people's deepest hopes, fears, and dreams, and attack opponents mm -hmm. in ways that would bypass people's critical thinking and move them toward desired action. Mm. And all the industries that came to support that, the advertising industry, um, industries of government, the mass media themselves, uh, radio, film. Mm. So, by the time um, Joseph Goebbels read Edward Bernays' book on propaganda and got inspired, um, it was only a matter of time that Hitler took over all aspects of all the cultural institutions, the schools, the museums, the film companies, the publishing houses, uh, every aspect of culture was taken over by the Nazis and every aspect of culture was turned into a, um, uh, a means of lionizing the Third Reich. Mm. The horrific impact of the propaganda state and its devastating impact on, well, depending on whose numbers you count, you know, seven to 10 million people, right? The devastating impact of genocide being a result of the uh, violence and propaganda um, led propaganda to be considered truly, truly dangerous. Mm -hmm. So, um, so what happened in the 1950s is that scholars and policymakers and academics came up with different words to use okay. to avoid using the word propaganda. So in, in, um, in government, they use the word public diplomacy. Okay. Public diplomacy is how you try to influence uh, people in other countries um, by um, delivering messages that convey 
the values of your country in ways that communicate your country's power, right? What Joseph Nye came to call soft power, right? You use power of communication to influence people in other countries about your country. Public diplomacy. Of course, the term public relations became normative for companies sending out one-sided, partisan, biased messages to promote their uh, companies. And even back in the 1970s, the New York Times would run something they called advertorials. They were advertising and opinion columns, and they were placed right there on the opinion page. Advertorials. I've never heard this word before. Advertorials. That's probably a good way to talk about propaganda with students. Have them write uh, advertorials, right? Today, we use the term influencers. Influencers. YouTubers, YouTube influencers and Instagram influencers, they're propagandists too. But we don't think of them that way. We call them influencers. So we have a lot of alternative words because the word propaganda is so scary to people. But as we understand in the big rhetorical podcast, you know better than anybody, right? That um, meanings meanings are flexible. Meanings change in context. And it's time now for us to call a spade a spade, to use the word that best fits the complex way in which people use image, language, and sound to create unreal realities. Mm. Let's call it propaganda. And today, this propaganda is perhaps contributing to an infodemic. In your book, you describe an infodemic, an actual term used by the World Health Organization to describe how users must must search for and decide what is credible information. Am I right? Is our society in an infodemic? Can we overcome it? Is that too big a question? Am am I understanding the concept right? I'll let you take it away. So it is interesting how uh, different discourse communities create, we're always creating new words to describe things that we're trying to understand better. Mm -hmm. And of course, infodemic and pandemic have that lovely root connection, uh, epidemic. So um, the misinformation about uh, the coronavirus and about the vaccine uh, makes that term seem particularly clever and appropriate. But I think it's interesting to point out that the um, challenges of sorting out who and what to trust are profound epistemological questions that have always been part of the human condition. This is not a new thing, right? I think what's new, as I understand it, or the place, what's creating the disturbance in the universe in a way, is this shift in emphasis um, that has happened as a result of the rise of the internet. Pre-internet culture, who to trust was based on authority. It was either your title, your role, your position, your status, or it was your expertise, right? We trusted authorities who vetted and 
uh, chose to publish some things and chose not to publish other things, who chose to explain the world in one way and not in the other way. Authority was, and we were all socialized by our education systems to trust authority because it was the closest path to truth. After the internet, um, another, another way of finding the truth began to rise. And so for that, we need the story of John and Hank Green. Perhaps you're familiar with them, the Vlog Brothers. Back in 2007, these two brothers started a daily video, I don't know, kind of like a podcast. It was a video sharing thing. They posted on YouTube. One brother posted one day, the next brother posted the next day. They started having a dialogue about life, love, and everything. And pretty soon they had millions of followers and pretty soon they became entrepreneurs and created the crash course empire on YouTube. What they helped us understand was that ordinary people with no particular talent or expertise could be by the force of their ethos, we would say in the rhetorical world, by the force of their character, could have credibility, could be more trustworthy than the experts. So we came to this place where we now actually trust influencers and YouTubers and Kim Kardashian more (laughs) than we trust authority and expertise. And that there's a really complicated backstory around why that happened. Mm-hmm. Right. That includes corruption in authority and corruption in expertise and the institutional corrosion of institutional values that have enabled uh, lies to masquerade as truth. Wow. But right now, the appeal of the mm, outsider, the non-expert, the person whose performance communicates authenticity That is an undeniable force in our culture right now. And it's why like 85% of eight to 18 year olds want to be YouTube influencers when they grow up. The rise of live. They want to live an authentic life. Yeah. What is authentic though, right? (laughs) Authenticity as a construction. How could I guess you were going to take us there, John? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Authenticity is a construction and there are strategies and devices that you use as a public speaker or as a writer to communicate authenticity and those things should be taught and learned. Yeah. Right. More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the big rhetorical podcast? The podcast is booking for next season. Now the big rhetorical podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond this record of conversations. Eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast.
If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. The rise of the internet, YouTube, social media influencers, Twitter politicians. In chapter one, you spent some time walking through what the a new phenomenon, not necessarily new, but new to me, I should say, I suppose, phenomenon that the internet has given us deep fakes. What's a deep fake and how should users contend with them? Mm. Well, so what's a deep fake is the use of machine learning um, algorithms to basically uh, create unreal realities where um, someone's, someone's voice can be transposed into someone else's image, into another image where people can be made to see and do things that they did not actually see that they did not actually do. So there's a lot of really famous ones out there. I, I think the first time, the first one I saw was President Obama giving what was a really wacky speech, right? And it was like one of those, you had one of those emotional moments where yes, it was President Obama giving a speech. And then all of a sudden it was like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> so it was riveting. Right. It was riveting. And um, I think the um, the world went on fire when we first learned about uh, deep fakes. And of course, now you can easily download and buy and create deep fakes yourself. The software has become very easy to use. But to me, the thing to be more worried about is the original form of deep fake. Mm. Right. The small tweaks that you can make through image editing and through sound editing to distort reality in ways that creates an unreal reality. Like for instance, the very simple technique that was used to make Nancy Pelosi's sound drunk Mm. by slowing down her rate of speech so that it just didn't seem right. And so um, that isn't a deep fake but it had it it has a profound destabilizing effect in spreading false information that is not immediately evident that it's false and so mm-hmm. in fact it's a that's the phenomenon that we're all facing right now is we all can't assume that what we're encountering is is accurate or truthful or represents reality we have to um suspend our trust until we we can verify. You explain in your book that propaganda exists at the triangulation of persuasion, information, and entertainment. What are some productive, or maybe some of your favorite, ways to engage students with this understanding of propaganda? And what are some of the responses you've you've gotten? And how does this contribute to lifelong learning? What a great question. I think I like, so in terms of my pedagogy, I like to create opportunities for dialogue and discussion. I like to create opportunities for students to create media to demonstrate their learning. And so the very first assignment that I often make, and sometimes I'll even use it, I'll, I'll make this assignment at the beginning of the semester and at the end of the semester is make propaganda. 
Okay. Right. Make some propaganda, right? Maybe make a propaganda meme. Sometimes I'll ask students to do that. Mm. Sometimes I'll ask them to make a propaganda, a short, like 30 second video. And students see right away that they often were not taught how to persuade. Mm. When they were in high school, they were taught how to build an argument to line up a set of statements that wow. build to a thesis statement and to build a logical, well-reasoned argument. This is not propaganda. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and when they realize they built this beautiful, logical argument that doesn't activate strong emotions, that makes everything really complicated and hard to understand, <laughs> <laughs> and that doesn't appeal to the values of the audience. They're not thinking, they're not even thinking about the audience in right. some ways, right? Um, that they have this kind of aha, that they realize, okay, so um, informing and persuading are different, mm -hmm. right? Um, and when students discover the ideologies in entertainment movies, they often have a completely, they have a, a little bit of a freak out. You know, just about a week ago, I was interviewed by Vox News. They did a really cool story on, you know, this is the summer of like action movies, right? Yeah. Post-pandemic, we're all going to see action movies. And um, around the 4th of July time, the uh, Vox Media interviewed me and said, well, can you help us understand these military war movies? And the role of the federal government in basically um, censoring these movies so that they portray a positive representation of the US military. Mm. And it's like, okay, yeah, sure, it's true. If you want to use the Pentagon's 12 different kinds of airplanes to make your movie, you're gonna have, there's gonna be some script approval, mm. right? Because you're getting the use of 12 fancy schmancy airplanes for free. Right, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a negotiation, right? right? But when students often realize that their emotions were activated by those war movies, and they were given, they were feelings of patriotism were just exuding from their pores, mm -hmm. and when they start to realize how carefully that was constructed in order to activate patriotism. Well, then they realize like, well, so entertainment media communicates values yeah. that can uphold or challenge the social status quo. For many students, that discovery that propaganda is embedded in our entertainment culture, that becomes a kind of profound moment because they start noticing it in the music they listen to. They start noticing it in the, the uh, video games they play. They start recognizing that they are surrounded by ideological messages that are promoting a worldview and a set of behaviors and attitudes that go with it all through what they think is innocuous, just for fun stuff. Chapter two of Mind Over Media turns attention to propaganda education. And you spend some time talking about fear. I wanna tell you that when you were just talking about that first assignment, you said, hey, make some propaganda. 
I'm I'm just a podcaster and I got afraid. I was like, what am I, I'm afraid to do that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but so what are some of the fears instructors might have teaching propaganda? And what are some of what are some of those fears and what can instructors do to overcome them? Yeah, what a great thanks for that great question. And you know, it's really true that fear is a kind of natural response because there are social responsibilities embedded in the practice of creating media. And that's true if we're asking students to write a five paragraph essay, if we're asking them to create a blog, if we're inviting them to make an infographic or a meme, there are social responsibilities of the communicator that come to the fore. And so taking those responsibilities seriously is really important. But a lot of teachers are nervous because they actually, this, the, polarization, the political polarization that has emerged in the last five years has uh, made decisions that used to be super easy for teachers much harder. Mm. Do I bring in the New York Times, CNN, or Fox News? Yeah. And I bring in a clip from Al Jazeera, right, to teach about labor unions. Mm -hmm. um, what, we what we discovered in uh, compiling all the stories for these books is that um, teachers have been and can face sanctions when they bring uh, controversial current content into the classroom. Mm. And um, teachers don't want to get fired. Teachers don't want to face a ding from their supervisor and teachers understand that stuff can be misinterpreted, right? Bring in a, a, a little piece of news about a Trump's many lies, for example. Mm. The Washington Post uh, noted at, within a year of his presidency that there were, whatever, 10,000 of them, right? Bring that, that Washington Post article in to talk about uh, telling the truth and lying and the power of media to amplify lies. Um, and maybe a parent, maybe a kid would go home and said, oh, teacher complained about Trump's lying. And parent gets a total misunderstanding of what happens and now a complaint emerges. So we know that uh, in that wonderful report by the Southern Poverty Law Center that um, they, the, the title of the report was called The Trump Effect, right? We know that more than 2,000 teachers reported that immediately after the election, they found increased racism, increased um, anti-immigrant uh, sentiment, uh, and examples of physical violence and verbal violence happening in schools. So in that climate, you can be a little bit sympathetic to a teacher who's nervous about bringing current events in the classroom. But as the book reveals, there are many ways to teach about propaganda in ways that do not create that kind of partisan divide. And I, I feel like, I, for instance, I just love that art teacher from Massachusetts who had her students create propaganda using, um, you know, linotype, right? Mm -hmm. And having to reflect on what's an issue you feel passionate about and wh who do you want to reach with your propaganda and how can you represent that message visually in a way that 
activate strong emotion. Thinking through those rhetorical choices meant the students were in charge of um, choosing the issue. And the teacher described, in the book I point, point out how the teacher described she did have to set boundaries. One kid wanted to do a piece of propaganda about why the Confederate flag was just like a symbol, like anything else, and it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the teacher had to sort of talk the kid off the ledge and say, you know, I won't be able to hang that poster in the hallway to show off your good work. <laughs> so maybe you could pick another topic. Right, yeah. <laughs> but those are great conversations because again, those are rhetorical conversations about context, yeah. right? And that's what kids and all of us need to understand. You mentioned Trump. Trump's lies and the Trump effect. Um, this might be a bit of a self-indulgence, but where are you on Trump in uh, 2021, summer 2021? Well, uh, today's New York Times um, has a pretty powerful story about um, the level of um, corruption and quid pro quo going on as um, foreign governments mm -hmm. gave Trump and Trump associates millions of dollars in order to promote their agenda. Mm -hmm. So I am, I feel like, of course, you know what, this is such an interesting thing. It's actually, propaganda is always faster than journalism, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Propaganda is easy to create because uh, you activate strong emotions and you, you, you know, you ping people's uh, uh, feeling centers and voila, it's easy, easy to create. Journalism involves the search for information and getting multiple points of view and validating and confirming. It takes much longer. So we're only now starting to understand what was going on in, 26, in 2015, in 2016, and 2017. And at this point, I feel like one of the things I'm thinking about doing with my own students is I'm I'm thinking about my own students. I'm thinking, let's do a, a little inquiry on election interference propaganda. Mm. And let's create a timeline where we gather information and show how that was happening. Mm. As we learned just today that the... Uh, uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, along with some Israeli undercover type folks, came to the Trump building and said, we'll do an undercover manipulation campaign on Facebook for you, right, three months before the election. So I feel like uh, we're all in this process of like trying to understand the recent past. Mm -hmm. And that's an important that's an important form of reconciliation that has to happen. In order for our country to move forward, we need a reconciliation that honors like what actually happened. How was the American public manipulated, right? What kinds, how were foreign governments involved in disinforming us about our election? So all those things are starting to unravel right now. And I, I only hope that, I don't know, fatigue, you know, and uh, diminished attention spans don't mm, encourage people to want to forget about it. I feel the same way about the insurrection, by the way. Yeah. You know, let's yeah. not forget about that. Okay. Absolutely. Let's try to understand it. Absolutely. I, I, almost now that you say that last part, 
I feel like almost that's what I was, was driving my question. Like Trump's been out of office for, you know, six months now. I feel like I'm not seeing Trump all over the television anymore, but I feel like I'm about to see a lot of Trump come the holiday time, you know, and stuff like that. Like, what's he doing right now? What's his propaganda machine working on? You know, it's scary stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, politics specifically, and you mentioned this throughout our chat, when, in, when people think of propaganda, they usually think of politics and elections. They think of Nazi Germany. These are points you can see in the book. These might be powerful places to start, but what are some other sites for instructors and students to examine while start studying and learning about propaganda? What a great question. Of course, I think advertising is a form of, of propaganda. And I think we should do a better job, and especially in the English language arts, we should do a better job of teaching about advertising, right? Um, because advertising has its own codes and conventions, its own rules. It is the engine. It's the economic engine of every media system, except maybe the publishing industry, where you still actually pay the author directly. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Through the middleman of the publisher, right? right. Uh, so advertising subsidizes all the free, I'm putting that in air quotes, air quotes the free listeners. media. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like uh, every student deserves to have a better understanding of the economics of media systems and institutions. Ever, studying advertising should not be somebody else's job. If you're listening to this podcast, you should take on the job of teaching about it. Enough said. I also think it's important to study art. Mm -hmm. I'm really fascinated with uh, artists like Banksy, mm -hmm. right? Who create these enigmatic, emotionally evocative images. Um, uh, A-Y-Y, also the Chinese artist whose amazing documentary, Flow, traces the history of human migration in ways that are poetic and lyrical and evocative. It's, it's, it's a documentary. It's, it's an, it's an, it's art and documentary combined in this magnificently powerful way. So I feel like studying artists who are trying to understand and represent the complicated experience of being human in a very strange world. I feel like understanding their work as beneficial propaganda is really an important place of um, inquiry for learners. And when we can appreciate that artists are trying to capture the mess of their of life and their place in it, and that the result can be inspirational, can be cynical, can be uh, make you think in a new way, can change the way you feel and think, that, that's acknowledging the power of expression and communication to make a difference in the world. And I also think that that kind of art also helps to build social consensus. Mm. We can't do democracy without social consensus. And right now we've got a highly fragmented society where everybody's hither, thither, and yon on 800 different agendas. And that social change works through consensus, right? And you think about all the ways in which the artists of the 1950s and 60s 
delivered music and poetry and um, films and books and and short stories and documentaries to capture their understanding about the civil rights movement that was happening in this country and how that poetry and art and culture was also part of the uh, impetus for this emerging social consensus. Mm. So I think artists have a huge role to play in society. I think um, a lot of that craziness we used to talk about, about hashtag activism and all you have to do is like or share, and that's not really meaningful civic action. It's like, nope, nope. Uh, being a beneficial propagandist is a meaningful, is a special talent. <laughs> well, activism, right? That's right. I have a big question. What is the future of propaganda in America? What new methods will we encounter? What is the digital landscape going to look like? For many, this new digital world is what artists, artists, critics, and historians envisioned and warned us about. So true. But I have trouble visualizing what's next. So what's next, Renee? Oh, what a great question. Honest to God, you're so much fun. Um, I'll, I'll, I, I will say, I will offer two possibilities, okay. uh, unknowable future. I'm not sure. Yeah. But I think we have some seeds that we can understand the future by looking carefully at the QAnon phenomenon. Okay. QAnon presented people with kind of like a video game like experience, a kind of puzzle, a kind of mystery to be solved, right? And one thing we know about humans, we crave sex, violence, children, animals, and the UFOs, right? We, we are drawn, right, to these things and the unknown, the mysterious has a undeniable lure on human consciousness. Yeah. I think new forms of propaganda that exploit intellectual curiosity is it's it's all in front of us if you look around it's all the q phenomenon is all about that mm -hmm. and i think other people will find ways to create adventures that activate people's going down the rabbit hole and feeling that sense of wonder and discover in ways that have been carefully constructed yeah. to promote uh, an, a worldview, an ideology, a set of values. Now, aligned with that, a little bit further in the future, but not too much further in the future, is the power of augmented reality. Mm. Now, we've been promised augmented reality for a long time, and in the video game world, damn, it's you know, the, 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 the streaming game streaming now sometimes seems like augmented reality. It's so, it's so visually intense and it's so, you know, complex. You literally are transported. But I think uh, new technologies of augmented reality may find ways to transport people into alternate utopias or dystopias that present uh, simple solutions to complex realities and that uh, engage people viscerally bypassing critical thinking by reaching right for the heart and the gut 
and uh, again, uh, promoting ideologies. The, the ideologies that I'm most worried about at this point right now are the violent extremist ideologies of the um, of the of the right of the of the white nationalists, right of the white supremacists. Um, and that's not just in the United States, but that's in Poland, that's in Hungary, that's in Germany, that's it, the nationalism in, in Japan, that is all over the, uh, in Brazil, it's all mm -hmm. over the world. So I think about how when people, one of the insights that Bernays and Goebbels and that propagandists throughout history have always understood is that when you can get people to feel things, they can make up all kinds of cognitive rationales to justify their feelings. In fact, most of us, it's how we do a lot of our decision-making. Mm -hmm. I see that new ooh-la-la phone. I get persuaded to, by a lot, to buy a lot of things this wow. way. The shiny new object captures my feeling, and then I justify, well, it's $600, but it's like I can make the payments 12 easy ways over a year. Uh, I, I can write it off as a business expense. I can, I can come up with all kinds of cognitive rationale to justify what was really affecting my decision-making, which was the feeling. So I feel like we have to pay a lot of attention um, to the, um, the adventure games of QAnon style conspiracies that activate people's emotions and lead them down a rabbit hole. And I think we have to pay a lot of attention to the alternative reality games and the way in which uh, game-like experiences can activate strong feelings and carry an ideology underneath um, without, our, without much of our con conscious awareness. So one more time, the book is Mind Over Media, Propaganda Education for a Digital Age. But my last question is, what are you working on next? <laughs> well, I'll I'm an academic too, right? <laughs> Thank you for asking. And I'm very, um, I'm writing, I'm writing a different piece than I've ever written before. Um, I'm working on a grief memoir. You may know that in 2016, my 28-year-old son, Roger Hobbs, died of a drug overdose. He was a wunderkind, um, published in the New York Times at age 19, the author of the best-selling crime novel, Ghost Man, which got to number four on the New York Times list and was published in 28 different languages when he was 23. Wow. And just graduated from college. He was a, an amazing writer and storyteller. And he was funny and he was smart and he was geeky and he was awkward. He was on the spectrum, but in a really beautiful, beautiful, beautiful soul. And so in my grief journey over five years, um, I have... Um, the book that I'm writing is called The Search for Ghost Man. I am trying to come to terms with my own loss by encountering Roger and um, I'm trying to understand the forces that um, propelled him into addiction and that made me blind to his addiction and that... Um, 
we're part of the gigantic cultural phenomenon still going on in this country, right? With 170,000 opioid overdoses. And that did not slow down during the pandemic, right? That continues to, to leave mothers without sons and fathers without daughters and spouses without their loved ones. So uh, writing about grief has been um, been a humbling and beautiful experience. And as you know, um, tragedy changes you and writing about tragedy transforms pain. Um, and I'm not sure what is trans, what the end of the, I don't know where this journey is going, (laughs) but, um, but I am, I'm getting a lot out of it. I hope I can find a publisher. (laughs) Um, Thanks for sharing about that project that is very personal. And, and uh, I wish you well working on that. I I can't wait to see it uh, soon or whenever you're ready. (laughs) Renee, thanks so much for, for doing this. This has been exceptional. Um, Listeners won't be able to tell this because, of course, this is all audio, but your spirit is very contagious to the screen. So I appreciate everything today. Well, you offered questions in a way that think about how readers encounter the book. And I feel like that's always the joy, isn't it? When writers can meet and uh, through questions and your thought of um, inviting the uh, it rem- um, uh, readers and writers connecting among the deepest of uh, our joys. So thank you for this great opportunity. hope you enjoyed my conversation with Renee Hobbs. I want to thank her for sitting with me for an interview over the summer. I also want to thank all of the podcasts and podcasters who participated in the 2021 Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival, contending with misinformation in the community and in the classroom. Pedagogue, May It Displease the Court, Sleep in Cinema Substrate Radio, Chiroticast, Defend and Publish Podcast, Writing Remix Podcast, 10-Minute Techcom, Rhetoricorama, In the Bin, and Creating Coalitional Gestures. Thank you. This is an annual event, and just as we grew last year, we hope to continue to grow in the future. And congratulations again to Abby DeCamp, you rock, and A very special thank you to the team at The Professor Is In, who co-sponsored our award this year to up the monetary prize to $500. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Karen and Kel. I'll be back next week with another episode of The Big Rhetorical Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. Rhetorically.